case we haven't met, I'm Dino Colombo. I represent people hurt by a truck. It's what we do every day. Navigating the law can be tough, but we're tougher. Let us handle the fight. Hurt by a truck? Call Colombo Law. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. This is Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. It's Wednesday, so it's the Wednesday edition of the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's area code 210. It's going to take me a long time to get this. 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use the free Calvary Chapel mobile app, and we will get your questions that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the hands-free feature on the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Wednesday, tonight we have our Old Testament Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel. Uh, I know not everybody can come, but this is a, a very, very, very special Bible study tonight. Second Samuel chapter 9, one of the two or three great chapters in all of the Old Testament to teach, and I am really excited about it. You might keep me in your prayers so I don't mess it up, but this is the story of David and Mephibosheth, and there is a whole lot more going on in the background than that. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock. Ladies, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. Um, If you have any questions or need any encouragement, she'll be here to take your phone calls. One thing I would ask everybody to do is keep Paula in your prayers. Actually, Paula and Jocelyn, uh, they are leaving Friday morning to go to Idaho Falls. Uh, They're going to be doing a women's retreat there, a women's conference or women's retreat. I don't know what it is, but uh, they're going to be doing that uh, on Friday night and Saturday. Uh, So I would appreciate your prayers for them as well and for traveling mercies. Let's get to questions. It's uh, one more time with the phone number, 340-9585. Here is an anonymous question that came in on our mobile app. Uh, Good afternoon, Pastor. I have a question about repentance. To repent of a sin means to stop and turn back to Jesus. How would a believer repent of being married to an unbeliever? Uh, My producer was noting when he sent this question forward to me, uh, that we seem to be sort of in a trend here about unequally yoked relationships. And before I answer this question, let me just please beg Christians, if you're single, uh, no matter how impatient you are to be married, if you're single, enjoy your singleness with the Lord. Let him pick out the husband or the wife for you. The desire of your heart to be married is a good one. Uh, Paul said it's not good for a man to be alone. It's only bad when we pick for ourselves and we do it with our own motives. If you do it for you, just because you're lonely, um, if you're looking for Mr. or Ms. Wright instead of, uh, or, and, and, and settle for less than that, uh, then you're going to get in trouble. And most of the pain, um, maybe that's not absolutely correct, but, but the biggest pain consistently that we who are pastors deal with is from people who marry unbelievers, Christians who get antsy and they make the decision to marry and they do it without considering whether or not the 
person they're going to marry loves Jesus or not. There's so much pain. Uh, You're right, anonymous, about repentance. It means to stop doing it and turn to Jesus. Now the way, and, and this may not be very satisfying to you, but the way to repent of being married to an unbeliever, first and foremost, just to say, Jesus, you told me not to do it in your word. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. And then tell the Lord that you're willing to deal with the consequences. It's that simple. There's no easy way out of this, and certainly there is no pain-free way out of this. So the way you can repent to show fruit of repentance is, in this case, I don't know whether you're a male or a female, but to be the best husband and be the best wife to your unbelieving spouse. You don't get to leave them. You make the decision to marry him. Uh, I talked about consequences a moment ago. Well, the consequence is that as long as they're willing to be married to you, and if they're not cheating on you or they're not abusing you or they're not trying to drag you into illegal activity, um, then you're stuck. And then you become God's instrument to be used inside the marriage. By that I mean you become an evangelist of sorts. You pour out the love of God on your spouse. You let them know that being married to somebody who loves Jesus is the best thing that could ever happen to them. And make your Jesus so attractive that they'll see that there's something about your Jesus that they miss, they're lacking. But the way you repent is to serve God faithfully where you are under the circumstances you're in. You see, we don't get uh, the opportunity to say, oh, you know, Lord, you were right. Let me tell you a very quick story. Um, A lot of years ago now, there was a a lady who was coming to our church. We were pretty new. And um, she came in one day and she says, well, you know, I think I'm, I'm falling in love with somebody and he's falling in love with me. Uh, and he's proposed to me, but he's not a believer. Now, these aren't kids. They were middle-aged people at the time. Um, but, but what do you think? Should I marry him? And she was anxious to get married, and so too, of course, was he. And I said, absolutely not. You can't marry this person. He is an unbeliever. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. In a marriage, it's the most pain, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried to convince her. Well, um, she sort of disappeared. That's never a good sign. We didn't see her for a while, and finally, a month and a half later, she comes back, and she says, well, I'm back. And I said, you married him, didn't you? And she said, yes. And I said, well, how's it going? And she said, well, it's not going too well. And so we just tried to kind of work her through it. A couple weeks goes by and she makes an appointment to see me and she said, you know, Pastor Ron, I've decided to take your advice. And I said, well, what, what advice is that? And she said, well, you told me not to marry him, so I'm not going to marry him. I'm going to divorce him. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't get to do that. Now, you made your choice and you did it willfully. So here's the new approach. And I took it to First Peter chapter 3. Paula spoke with her. Didn't work. It didn't work. So please, 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 Anonymous, accept your role now as God's tool to be used to win your husband or to win your wife. You represent God rightly. Get up in the morning. Make sure they see you full of joy. Make sure they see you reading your Bible. Go to a church. Get involved in a church serve that church come home and be filled with joy offer your spouse the opportunity to come to church with you every time you go don't nag them but just say I'm going to church want to come and pray 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 for your unbelieving spouse that's what real repentance is that's the fruit of repentance. It is a very difficult situation. Let me just say this. You're going to need a really solid support system. You're going to need people around you. Now, don't complain about your husband to them. You picked him or or your wife. You picked her. Don't complain about them. Don't grumble. Don't tell other people bad things about them. Just let the joy of the Lord be your strength. But that's why you being closer to Jesus than ever before is the thing you need the most. 
I wish I could say it's going to be easy. He or she may be very nice and they may be content to live with you. But an unbeliever, by definition, you have nothing in common with them. Make sure that your life is filled with passion. Let that passion be spent on your spouse. Serve him or serve her. And ask Jesus to do a miracle for you. Hope that helps. 340-9585. Here's an interesting question from William. He says, Pastor Ron, how do you view the Old Testament and New Testament in terms of which has more authority in our lives? William, I think the, the obvious answer to the question is that the New Testament has more authority in our lives because it is the covenant um, under which we function now. Um, but both the Old Testament and New Testament have authority in our lives because it's all the inspired word of God. Now, I don't know if this is what you mean, but let me give you uh, some help. When you look at the Old Testament, it's sort of like God is, um, I always use the illustration of the old connect the dots or connect the numbers uh, coloring books. You know, you can, you can connect the dots and get sort of a picture of what's going on. When you get to the New Testament, it's like filling in all of the blanks inside the picture. So you get a picture, you get a shadow of, of, of who Jesus is. But in the New Testament, you get the fullness of Christ revealed to you. Uh, in the Old Testament, we get pictures of his plan for our lives. In the New Testament, we get specific plans for our lives. So all of it has great authority. The problem with the Old Testament is people often take the Old Testament out of context and apply those promises to the lives of Christians and you can't do that. Now, the Lord can speak to you through those promises. The Word is living and active. It meets you where you are. And God may very well have a lot to say to you uh, when you're reading the Old Testament. But for life, for doctrine, uh, for seeking and finding the will of God in our lives, uh, the New Testament is um, complete authority in our lives. But don't stop reading the Old Testament. It has great value, even though it might be less value. I think one of the things that real understanding of the Old Testament will do for you, William, is give you a greater appreciation of the majesty, the supernatural majesty of the Word of God. It really and truly uh, is beyond anything that we can understand. Uh, for example, I said earlier I'm going to be teaching Second Samuel chapter 9 tonight. And, um, you know, we're, all of us, Mephibosheth. All of us, we want to be like David in this chapter. And this really is a New Testament study using Old Testament characters. It really is about grace and about our response to grace and a lot more. So um, I'd hate for anybody thinking, well, the Old Testament doesn't have as much authority to, to, to stop reading it. It's just that rich. So, William, I hope that helps. Here is a question from Richard. He says, I recently saw the movie about the Apostle Paul. Do you think it was realistic, and do we know for sure how Paul died? Um, um, Richard, I do think it was fairly realistic. Now, obviously, there was some things out of sequence. It was Paul and Luke telling a story, and there's a lot of creative license there. But I think the story in and of itself was realistic. I think the interaction between the two was realistic. Uh, some of the things that weren't realistic about it, um, all the scenes dealing with Paul in the Mamertine prison, which is uh, most of his uh, interaction is there, uh, the flashbacks to his persecution of, of Christians notwithstanding. Uh, the Mamertine prison was, was a horrible, horrible place. And there were times in the movie where it made it look like he was on a vacation to the Mediterranean Ocean, uh, Mediterranean Sea. Now, it, it just isn't so. Um, at the end of his life, um, at Mamertine prison, Paul didn't have freedom. He had freedom in his earlier imprisonments, uh, freedom to receive guests, um, but not at the Mamertine prison. 
Um, it was a horrible place. It would have been a place where they would have lived uh, with their own refuse, if you understand what I mean. Um, uh, it would have been just an unbearable existence. And um, and they made it look as though it was uh, a pretty nice place, and it just really wasn't. Um, we do know how we died. I mean, there's enough uh, secular corroboration of being beheaded by Caesar Nero that uh, it, it is certain that Paul lost his his head, um, having been convicted of, of crimes against Rome. Um, but it was something that Paul, of course, obviously knew and uh, was ready for. So uh, I liked the movie, Richard. I hope you liked it. Um, I like the Apostle Paul. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Steve. Uh, he says, do you think all white people are racist even if they aren't aware of it? And what should the church do about racism in the past? Um, Steve, let me work backwards on this. The church can't do anything about racism in the past. The old is gone, the new has come. There's nothing that your ancestors or my ancestors did uh, that we can make right. Uh, there's nothing that we should take responsibility for. Whatever happened in the past, happened in the past. And from a Christian perspective, remembering that the old is gone, the new has come, um, it, it, it relieves people from, from sort of a victim mentality that, well, I'm just stuck, you know, this is the way it's always been, and uh, I, I'm, I'm oppressed. So uh, there's nothing that we can do about racism in the past. What should we do about racism now is the question. And my church will tell you, Steve, um, we, we talk about this a lot as we're teaching through the Bible. Uh, God does not see race nor ethnicity. He doesn't see cultural differences. Um, God sees only saved and unsaved people, those who are his and those who are not his. And we need to look at people in much the same way. Uh, we need to be uh, blind to the differences and rejoicing over the commonalities, we who are in Christ. And if people would understand that Jesus came to give us a completely new perspective, um, then we would be able to do something about racism in the present because we could be active agents being used by God to, to solve racism. You know, Steve, there's a whole lot of problems in the church. Now, I understand people go to church many times close to where they live. Um, we're, we're sort of a unique church, and other churches that have uh, public platforms are unique in the sense that people will drive quite a long way to come to church uh, where we are. Um, having said that, uh, if you come to our church, the racial diversity here is, is startling. Um, we're, we're a picture of our city, only we, we, we have a, a, a larger African-American population in our church percentage-wise than the city does. Our church is about 60% Hispanic. Uh, we have, uh, because of our military location here in San Antonio, we have a whole bunch of people uh, with with Asian backgrounds. Um, we, we've got people from every nationality. Not only that, we're diverse in terms of age and economics and, and social status. Um, I think it's important that we're a reflection of the, the community that we live in. Now, having said that, there's no doubt that there are people who are racist who are in church every Sunday, whether it's here at other churches. There's also no doubt that those who go to church close to where they live are going to find that most of the people in the church look like them. Uh, I really think people are missing out if that's the case. Um, but racism has to be condemned in the strongest of terms from every pulpit in the, in the United States. Now, the problem is, as your question implies, Steve, that this whole idea of if you're white, you're a racist, even if you're not aware with it, is from the devil. I've been married to a beautiful black woman. She's been the love of my life for now almost 48 years. And think about that. I've got two children who the world would say are black. I'm not racist. I'm a Christian. 
if I'm a Christian, I've got to see people the way Jesus sees them. Now, that's not going to take away the fact that my kids were victims of racism and probably still are. They're grown men now, so I don't talk to them about it. But growing up, my kids were hassled by cops, especially my our older son, Ronnie. And they didn't like the fact that he was driving nice cars and they hassled him a lot. I understand that that racism still occurs. We who are God's people, however, Steve, we're the ones with the answer. And I think for Christians to get involved in making up for sins of the past puts us right in the middle of the problem all over again because we're viewing people from the perspective of race. I really want this to make sense. We who are Jesus's, we shouldn't look at somebody and say, oh, there's a black guy or there's, a, there's a, an Asian woman. We should look at saved and unsaved. It should be the only thing that we care about. And if we're effectively doing that, then we're actually the solution to the racism problem for the people in this world who are victims of racism. So I hope that helps a little bit. I, I, you know, I don't know what else to say. I'm not at all slighting um, those who have been victimized by racism. I'm certainly not in denial that our country is racist in background. But if you look historically, at every nation in the history of this world, they were all racist against people who weren't like them. It's also interesting to note that it all began at the Tower of Babel when men were rebelling against God. That's where the differences in people and the, and the different races and different nationalities occurred. God scattered them so they couldn't understand when it confused their language and they had to go to places and be with people that were like them. And racism has been a part of the history of this world from the very beginning. Now let me conclude by saying this, Steve. When we talk about slavery in the Bible, it has nothing whatsoever to do with slavery as we understand slavery in the United States. It's not a black and white issue. It's not a race issue. In the world, it was a class issue. That's all it was. It was a class issue. There were those who could afford Roman citizenship and those who couldn't. Going back even farther, there were servants, people who worked for rich people, and, and, and the rich people who hired them. And in a very cruel world, servants have always been treated like slaves. Our job is to change all of it. Hope that helps. Thank you very, very much, Steve. Uh, three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls or toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Here's a question from Lisa. Uh, she wants to know: Do you think that if there was no God, our consciences would not bother us? Um, Lisa, I really do. I really do. Romans one makes it clear that conscience is is one of the tools God uses us to make us aware of the reality of God. Um, something that you do and it bothers you right and wrong. If there is no God, there's no objective standard of right and wrong. And so, yeah, I think if there were no God, if there really was no God, our consciences wouldn't bother us. We'd be free to do whatever it is that we wanted to do. Now, the problem with this is when you, when you answer that question the way I just answered it, Lisa, um, people say, well, well, there are people who don't believe in God who have good morals and they're, 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 they're good people. Well, they are. But the fact that they are here and the fact that there is a God is the reason that they're good people. They're more sensitive to their consciences, but, but that's God at work even in the, the minds and hearts of those who don't believe in him. Truth is, if there's no God, there's no objective standard of right or wrong. We're all free to do whatever we want. If we're all, by the way, these animals, if we've evolved from lower life forms, you don't find conscience in the animal world. But I think the thing that we have to remember is there is a God 
And conscience is one of the tools that he's given us to make us aware that he's real, that he's the arbiter of right and wrong. So I do believe that that the premise of your question is correct. I, I honestly think if there was no God, this would be an unconscionable, unconscionable world. Uh, I, I, I say that based in part, Lisa, on the fact that the ancient world was so brutal, absolutely brutal. Read what Nebuchadnezzar did, and not just in the Bible, but read some of the history about Nebuchadnezzar. He was probably the most ruthless man who's ever lived. Why? Because he was an idol worshiper. His gods couldn't talk back to him. And yet still he had a conscience as proven by the fact that he got saved. So I hope that helps, Lisa. We have 30 minutes left in the program. We'd love your live calls. You're always more interesting than I am. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left. A uh, quick reminder, tonight I'm going to be teaching on 2 Samuel chapter 9. You can watch it at calvarysa.com. Uh, or you can be here and join us and meet some of the nicest people that you will ever see um, in our church. We don't have a big crowd on Wednesday nights. It's Old Testament night. It's always been. But it is a faithful group of people, and boy, they love Jesus. And tonight's study is a treasure. Here is an anonymous question, kind of like the or, 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 uh, offshoot of the question about racism. Anonymous says, how should Christians feel toward illegal immigrants? Boy, that's the question of our time right now, isn't it? Um, We should look at people with one goal. Do they know Jesus? And if they don't, how can we tell them? But see, as a Christian, or even churches, we don't have the opportunity to make laws. So we don't have to view the people that we encounter day by day from the perspective of the law. Now, we're a nation of laws and we should have laws. I think it's time, Anonymous, for this nation to decide once and for all uh, what its position on immigration is. Um, I, I think we should either have rules, laws, and enforce them or not have them at all. Uh, I think we're at a time when the world is trying to uh, insist that borders be removed. Uh, I don't understand how that could be healthy or even possible. Uh, it's certainly not uh, going to be the situation we find in the rest of the world. We, we, you know, Borders exist, and they exist for reason. But as a Christian, and that's the way you ask the question, how should Christians feel toward illegal immigrants? Whoever we encounter, again, without having a political position, we should be the arms and the heart, the hugs of Jesus to them. We should treat all men and women with respect, period. I think sometimes, you know, we ask the Lord for opportunities. Uh, Lord, let me run into somebody who needs to hear about you. And if uh, it's somebody that politically we don't agree with their right to be here, um, th- then we will miss the opportunity. Uh, I-, I want to proclaim Jesus to anybody and everybody that he brings along the way. So um, I think the way we should look at them is with respect. Uh, I-, I think when we spew hatred or vitriol um, because they're illegals, I think we've lost the heart of God. Um, And remember, we're not the lawmakers, and we're not the lawbreakers. We're the ones who represent Jesus, and we've got to look at everybody the way he does. Does that mean that I think politically we should 
strip away all the borders and anybody should be able to come who wants to come. No, because I'm not even thinking about it from that perspective. All I know is I don't want to miss a single opportunity to be Jesus' representative for anybody I run across. I think the mad rush into the political positions of people that don't know Jesus is a dangerous thing for us. So let people who are charged with the task of deciding what direction our nation is going to go, let them make those decisions. You vote, you have a a say-so in who you vote for, Uh, but when those decisions are made, or or in some cases not made, we never are, are free from our role of representing Jesus. And I think one of the dangers, Anonymous, of looking at people as illegal immigrants, they may be here illegally, and they may be immigrants in the classical sense, but if we start looking at them that way, then what happens is that we stop looking at them through the heart and through the eyes and through the mind of Jesus. Whoever comes here tonight, whoever comes on Sunday or Friday night service, they're going to hear the Bible preached. And if they come to make a profession of faith, they're going to be loved on. If they walk out of here trying to avoid people because they don't don't care about meeting people, they're going to be attacked. And I mean that in a loving way. Uh, people here are going to make them uncomfortable with the amount of love that they get. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do. So I don't think this is a position that we have to have a political agenda and deal with it based on that agenda. I think what we need to do, Anonymous, is do nothing more than vote for the person that we think most accurately represents our point of view politically, and then love everybody else. I know that's not an answer that's going to satisfy people. we got to be yes or no, but save those kind of arguments for Facebook. They have no value. Let's go to Phyllis on line one, calling from San Antonio. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. How are you and Paula? We're doing well today. Thank you, Phyllis. Oh, good. You know, I've been in school and studying, uh, uh, you know, where we in the Old Testament, and I ran across a real good question that came to mind, but it's one of, our, one of the questions in our, our text. And the question is to describe what it means to be made in the image of God. I want to um, give the answers of what the text says, but I also want to, you know, you to elaborate um, on that question also. Um, first, it said humans were created specifically for a relationship with God, to serve Him in complete obedience. And then it goes on to say humanity was to have dominion over the creation Mm -hmm. and all the results of bearing God's image. And when I thought about the uh, uh, be fruitful and multiply, all the time I was thinking (laughs) this was to uh, be creative as far as bearing more children. But, it to- mm-hmm. you know, it's, it means something totally different. So um, if I can get some answers on that, I would really appreciate it. And I'll take, take them off the air. And thank you okay, so Phyllis. much. Thank you. Um, before I, I talk about being made in the image of God, um, when, when God said be fruitful and multiply, he was talking about bearing children. Very specifically, if you've got a, a professor or um, somebody who's telling you differently, uh, that's to remove the context of the story completely. God wanted people to populate the earth because we were created in his image. We were the best thing that did humans. And um, uh, obviously, uh, God, who knows everything, knows that we needed population for, for the Christ to come from, uh, for Jesus to be a human. So to be made in his image would accomplish that. Uh, and being fruitful and multiplying, Phyllis, uh, specifically dealt with that and that alone. Anything else is eisegesis rather than exegesis. And I've, I've run into it many, many times uh, with with uh, um, people that really aren't really strong in the sense of, 
understanding the Bible as a final authority for life. Um, they they impose a lot of their views. So um, we were to have dominion over the earth. We're to have dominion. We're to care for for um, um, animal life. Uh, but uh, we distort those things from the simple meaning that God had. He, he made um, everything that we could eat. He made it uh, for our enjoyment. He made it for our sustenance. Um, the animal life he made for, for our enjoyment. And, and, and later, after the fall, of course, the ability to provide food. Um, let me go back to the bigger question. To be made in God's image, Phyllis, means two things. Um, you know, people say, well, no, God, we're made in God's image, so we all have value. Uh, we all have value, but it's, it's not because we're made in God's image. It's made because he created humankind. To be made in the image of God means two things. First, it means that we, like God, have the capacity to choose what life is going to be like. In this particular case, God chose us. We get to choose him. So we have the capacity to choose of our own free will whether we're going to serve Jesus or rebel against him. It's that simple. So we have a choice. Just like God has a choice, he exercised it. Phyllis, to choose you and to choose me. Uh, that's the first thing that being made in his image means. The second thing means that because we're made in his image, from the moment of our incarnation as a human being, we're going to live forever. We're going to live forever. Now, our bodies physically obviously give out and die. We experience that all the time. But it doesn't mean that that once we die, we stop being. Why? Because we're going to live somewhere forever. So the choice that we have to make in life is where we're going to spend eternity. Because we're going to live forever somewhere, once these bodies give out, the real us, the, the spirit that inhabits these physical bodies, the real us is either going to go be in the presence of the Lord and have a, a glorified, resurrected body like he does, or our spirit, having rejected Jesus Christ, is going to go to a place where we will be tormented forever and ever and ever. The absence of God, we call it hell, is sheer torment. Now, the specific torment is, is, is a lot metaphorical. We know there will be pain. We know we'll be conscious and aware. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But we're going to live somewhere forever. So that is the only thing that's meant by we're made in the image of God. We don't look like him. We're not going to be perfect like he is. Um, you know, people use that. Well, we're made in the image of God, and so if I'm a homosexual, as an example, well, I'm made in the image of God, so God accepts me. No, he doesn't. To be made in the image of God means just those two things. We make choices in life, just like God makes choices in life, and we're going to live somewhere forever. So, Phyllis, I hope that helps. It's much simpler than a lot of seminaries and online Bible colleges try to make it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Rebecca that's very topical for today. Um, Pastor Ron Barbara Bush chose comfort care rather than trying to stay alive. Was she a Christian, and is this a legitimate choice for Christians? Um, Rebecca, first, I have no idea whether Bar- Barbara Bush was a Christian or not. I hope and I pray that she was. Um, um, she was a, a, a woman who represented our nation well. Uh, she was smart. She was tough. She was joyful. Sort of America's grandma had very white hair, even at early ages. Um, she could hold her own in a discussion. She had great intellect. Uh, and, and we as Americans um, could be very, very proud of her. Um, sometimes I wish, regardless of your political views, that we could go back into the time where the people that uh, were elected officials and their, in this case, spouses, were statesmen and women. And and Barbara Bush was a stateswoman, uh, and uh, and and was really, really a great role model and to be admired. But I don't know if she was a Christian. I, I don't know. The fact that she went to church doesn't mean she was a Christian. 
I've said it over and over on this program, she was born again. So um, let me settle that. Only Barbara and, and, uh, and the Lord know now for sure. Uh, I would ask everybody to pray for uh, her husband, our 41st president, George Bush. And um, it'll be a very, very difficult time. They were very, very close. And their relationship was a very healthy one for the rest of the world to look at. Now, again, we can't look in the, in the private places, but it was a very, very healthy relationship. Now, regardless or, or regarding the choice that she made about comfort care rather than trying to stay alive, I think it is a perfectly legitimate choice. What it means is that um, they were managing her pain uh, rather than fighting anymore the causes of that pain. Um, I understand she had COPD and congestive heart failure. Um, and life was really hard. She was 92. Our bodies give out. And at some point she decided that um, since nothing could be done, there was nothing wrong with just leaving um, her death in God's hands. And um, again, I pray that, that she could do that because she had a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Um, but I, I think it's a perf- perfectly legitimate choice for people to make. Um, you know, Rebecca, in, in uh, Paul and I, we've talked about this. You know, as you get older, you have to talk about these things. The, the person who's left behind, uh, we don't, you know, to, to make them make difficult, sometimes impossible choices is unfair. Uh, I don't want extraordinary means uh, used to keep me alive. I, I, I want my life, as long as I have it, to, to be a life that is quality, a life uh, with, with strength and energy that can be spent for Jesus. Uh, I want to be here as long as he wants me to, not one minute longer. And um, I, I want Paula to be free from having to make that decision. And she's said the same things uh, about her to me. So... Um, I, I don't think extra ordinary means to keep somebody alive is necessarily the will of God. I think at times like this, especially now I'm talking to Christians, Rebecca, at times like this, um, if if it were to happen to me, I would trust that I would pray and the Lord would, would, would give me direction. Um and, and then we'd be obedient. We'd trust him. So um, I think it is a perfectly legitimate choice for Christians to make. Uh, and uh, again, I, I pray for the Bush family. Um, and I hope and pray that praying is no value now. It's too late. But I, I hope, I really hope that she was a born-again Christian. Here is a question from Tony. He says, my question is about manna. I'm curious about what we can learn from the manna God provided. Uh, Tony, um, manna is, as you know, the, the food that God fed Israel with in the Exodus wilderness. The name means, what is it? Um, the reason it's funny is because every morning the, the Israelites in the Exodus wilderness would get up and see the manna spread all over the ground, and, and literally they were saying, what is it? And so that's what they called it, what is it? It was like a coriander seed uh, with some seasoning. Uh, I love that God was so kind and gentle that he spread it out over the desert over a layer of dew so as not to, to, to let the food the people were going to eat get dirty. The people would get creative and make it in different ways and prepare it different ways. Um, but, but it was there every morning. It was there every morning. Now, the value for us, what we can learn from the manna, is simple. It's a picture of grace. Tony, every day God has enough grace for just that day. You know, the manna, they could eat only enough for one day. That's all they could gather. Except on the Sabbath, then they would gather two days worth. If they gathered more than than God told them to gather, then the result would be that that it would be rotted. They'd find maggots in it and... Uh, it just wouldn't be edible. Um, the story there, the picture there for us, is that God's grace is exactly the same way. One of the reasons that we're told over and over by angels and by Jesus and by other people in the Bible, do not be afraid, is because when we worry, when we're afraid about something, we're often trying to spend grace that God hasn't given yet. So the lesson for the man is every day, 
Eat it all up. Use it all. And in the morning when you awaken, there will be a whole batch of grace, spiritual manna, waiting for you for that day. And the lesson is to learn to trust God day by day, hour by hour, even minute by minute, knowing that His grace is sufficient, knowing that His presence is more than enough. And then by faith we trust Him. Sometimes we get tired of waiting. We get to where we give in to fear, to worry. And it's like trying to gather extra manna for days that we don't need it. And of course it's rotten when we do that and we take matters often into our own hands. We don't want to take matters into our own hands. We want to leave our matters in the hands of God. And God's grace every day is enough. You know, I talk a lot in this program, Tony, about just being with Jesus. That's the manna every day. He said he's the bread of life. Just be with Jesus. He sent the Spirit of God to be in us and to empower us. But the Spirit won't do that, can't do that, if we're taking matters into our own hands. When I talked earlier about the the woman who married an unbeliever because she was tired of being alone. Um, she took matters into her own hands and it cost a lot, lots and lots of pain. Well, the way we can protect ourselves is to get up every day reporting for duty. What about me, Lord, and what about today? And then he'll take your hand and walk you throughout this day. He'll be with you wherever you go. You know, normal course of day stuff, work and school or whatever it is you do. But the thing that we really need to focus on is what about me, Lord, and what about today? That's what we can learn from the manna. It never ran out, and it wasn't until they got to the promised land that they noticed it stopped and God allowed them to feed themselves. In this life, at least figuratively speaking, Tony, we never, ever will run out of grace. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. We've got time. Five minutes. About five minutes. Um, Donald wants to know: Is it possible to know God's will for our prayers? Uh, yeah, I think it is, Donald. Um, you know, it's God's will that with thanksgiving we make our request known to God. So one of the requirements of knowing God's will for your prayers now—it's interesting you put it that way—is to have a grateful heart. To really have a grateful heart. I ask God for a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. We need so much. But asking Him and being joyful isn't dependent upon Him saying yes. To come to the Lord, we've got to be content with what we have. And when we're content and when we're grateful, I think God delights in hearing our prayers. It doesn't mean He's going to answer them all. But He's going to answer the ones that are in His will. He's going to answer the ones that are good for us. He's going to withhold the answers to prayer, at least the answers that we want from Him in prayer, are those things that are going to be damaging to us. So a grateful heart is the key ingredient. I also think, Donald, that like Jesus, we've got to get to that place where we can honestly say, no matter what it, what it is we want, what it is we're asking for, nevertheless, thy will, not my will, be done. I think if those are two things you can say truthfully, I'm grateful to you, Lord, if you never say yes to another prayer. And secondly, Lord, I want your will, not my will, be done, even if I'm asking you in prayer for a bunch of things that are my will. And if we can say, thy will, not my will, be done, then I think that we can be really on solid ground to know God's will for our prayers. I think, Donald, one of the things that we do is we fail to realize just how much God wants to say yes to us. So give him the opportunity. Let's go to Cindy calling on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I was curious, in the old times, um, 
were the were uh, the Jews the only ones that were crucified, or did Romans crucify other Roman criminals? Yeah, Cindy, good question. Uh, they crucified everybody who was a criminal, everybody who was a threat to Rome. The the whole idea of of, of crosses lining the, 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 the roads into Rome, uh, the whole idea was to act as a deterrent. Nobody would dare challenge um, Roman authority um, because that would be the punishment. So they crucified everybody who rebelled against Rome. That was an exclusively Roman method of, of execution. Uh, and it was obviously um, uh, torturous uh, and served as a deterrent. So they, it wasn't just Jews, but, but of course we know Jews were included. But anybody and everybody who rebelled against Roman rule, uh, they would, they would uh, crucify. Uh, Cindy wasn't the only way. They would burn people to death. The crucifixion was, was uh, the, the method of execution we're most familiar with, uh, simply because uh, that's the way Jesus was killed. But, but Christians in the first century church were often used, and this, by the way, is depicted very graphically in the Paul movie, the new Paul movie. Uh, they were used as candles to light courtyards. They'd be pitched in tar, and, and, and they would burn to death, and they would serve as light. They would be put to death in the lion's den. So there were lots of ways they had, but crucifixion was certainly one of them. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. Ladies, don't forget, Paula will be live in the studio with you on the program tomorrow. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow, God willing. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On For Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On For Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On For Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.